You're listening to the Midlife Mastery Podcast. I'm Peter Fritz, and this is a show about mastering the issues that we midlifers face, from basic money concerns to not having enough free time, right through to the dreaded midlife crisis. Sometimes we have guests on the show, and other times, well, it's just me. But either way, my job here is to offer a little bit of practical, real-world advice, plus the occasional kick up the bum, all with the objective of helping you to master the best time of your life, your midlife. Hey, welcome back to the Midlife Mastery Podcast. This is episode number 26. I'm finally getting into the groove of this thing. You'll find the show notes, or rather the blog post that accompanies this episode at midlifetribe.com slash 26. And today's topic is something I've been putting together for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's an idea that's been stewing in the back of my head for a while, and that is the key decisions that have really changed my life. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, before I get to that, though, um, I just want to thank Chris Gillibo for the opportunity that he gave me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if you know Chris, but uh, he's uh, written a couple of best-selling books, a number of them actually, Um, and I discovered Chris probably about two years ago, thanks to Corbett Barr from Fizzle, and he recommended that I read Chris's book, The Art of Nonconformity. Chris travelled to every country in the world by the time he hit his 30s. Uh, That's all 193 countries, and he's been to many of them uh, multiple times. And his most recent project, uh, The Side Hustle School, uh, comprises a book which he recently released uh, as well as a podcast which has been running for well over a year and um, the podcast is brilliant I've been listening to that since the very first day and anyway Chris was on his way to Australia for the um, Australian leg of his 100 city side hustle school world tour for the release of the book and um, when I found out that he was coming to Melbourne I put my hand up straight away and said, I would love to help if there's some way that I can. You know, I've got these skills. I'm a photographer. I'm a writer. Uh, I can help with these different elements of the event if you would like me to. And I was absolutely thrilled when he said, yes, um, would love you to come and photograph the event. So it was a great opportunity to to meet a guy who I've respected and admire uh, for some time now and have learned a tremendous amount from. And I'm happy to say that uh, Chris was exactly as I expected him to be. He was authentic, uh, very down-to-earth, very modest, uh, extremely likable. Um, So, Chris, I... I don't know if you listen to this podcast. I'm, it's unlikely that you do, given how busy you are and the projects that you're involved with. But I just wanted others to know that uh, I really appreciate the chance to have uh, met you and, and photographed this event and to have uh, gotten to know you just a little bit and to reconfirm in my mind that there are people out there who are genuine, authentic, decent people um, who have real value to offer the world. So thank you for that. Anyway, back to the topic of today's discussion, uh, the major decisions that have changed my life. I want to start off with um, the uh, speech that Steve Jobs gave back in 2005, the Stanford University commencement speech. And you've probably seen this uh, on YouTube, you've probably heard of it. But uh, the point that I want to focus on is when he said, you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in the future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and it has made all the difference in my life. It's a brilliant quote and it's a very simple statement, but it's as reassuring as it is profound. The bottom line is we can't know everything in advance. We don't know how things will work out. I mean, we can plan ahead as best we can. We can plan for possibilities. But as John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. 
Now, these days, my life is really completely different to what it was, say, 15 years ago. Despite that, I still work for the same company. I'm still a married man with kids, and I serve pretty much the same people. But what makes my life different and better are some of the conscious decisions that I made, plus a few accidental ones. Now, some of these decisions almost killed me. Some saved me, while others altered the course of my life forever. And some of them made life worth living, even when the evidence seemed otherwise. We like to believe that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, but I don't think that's always true. In my 30s and my early 40s, I went through a long period of deep frustration and anxiety and unhappiness, I guess. And if anything, that period made me weaker, not stronger. The circumstances of some were my own creation, they were my own own fault, while others were beyond my control, at least for some time. One of the big mistakes I made was expanding our property investment portfolio too quickly. Uh, I should have been more patient, but money was flowing from the banks like wine at that time, and I, I wanted to ride the curve while I could. And the reality is that we probably could have made it through the GFC and the 50% drop in income that we suffered at the time had we not made our last purchase. Um, it was really the straw that broke the camel's back and everything tumbled from there. I worked really, really hard during that period. Um, I worked my job during the day and then I painted walls and did floor tiling and you know all sorts of other renovation jobs. Uh, into the night, off until two or three in the morning. And for the longest time, I survived on maybe four or five hours sleep a night. Uh, and then it was all gone. By the time the divorce settled, I'd lost all three houses and both of the apartments, all gone. And then the divorce, well, the divorce itself almost killed me. And were it not for the support and frequent visits of just a couple of people, I, I don't think I would have made it through that period. I really wouldn't have. And I maintain that ending a toxic relationship was the right move. I'm convinced of that. But the really hard thing was leaving my kids. Even though I only moved a few miles away, that period was that was a wounding experience. And it was so painful that sometimes at night with bloodshot eyes and an empty bottle of wine on the kitchen table, I I just wanted to fall asleep and not wake up. It was a horrible period. Um, I guess the bottom line is I became so fatigued by all of this that these days I can't really stomach conflict anymore. If if I hear raised voices or anything like that, I find myself looking for the nearest exit. I just, I can't stomach it anymore. And it's the same now with investing and with debt. I'm super conservative now and I can sense the disquiet deep in the pit of my stomach as soon as I deviate from that. I mean, I can literally feel it when I start uh, having the kinds of thoughts that I used to have years ago where I wanted to take an extra risk or I wanted to try something in which I had little experience. I feel that physically in my body these days and I know to steer away from that. But the funny thing is none of this would have happened if one of my clients had succeeded in killing me, which he, he almost he very nearly did. I remember it was about three o'clock in the morning when it started. I got the tightness in the chest, the pain down the left arm and the sudden shortness of breath. I'd only just gotten to bed. I'd been up late working. And I remember when I was struck with these feelings, I got out of bed as quietly as I could so I wouldn't wake anyone. And I walked down to the back of the house and I remember sitting in the lounge room with my bare feet on the cold tile floor, thinking, well, this is it. I'm going to die tonight and I'll never see my kids again. My kids were going to grow up without a father. It was really terrifying. Um, obviously, <laughs> I didn't die. <laughs> and um, I went off to um, <clears throat> to hospital the next day and I had a battery of tests done and they said, yep, you had a heart attack. So I fired this client the next day. 
I told him I couldn't answer his emails at two in the morning and I wouldn't tolerate the verbal abuse for failing to march to his dictatorial standards anymore. This was a guy who would uh, email me at two, three in the morning and be extremely upset if I didn't respond straight away. I don't know what kind of drugs this guy was on, but it seemed like he never slept, never slept. Um, But I called him up the next day and I said, uh, I'm not going to die for you. And firing a client, as it turns out, can actually save your life. Because I think if I hadn't done that, I think if I had told myself to get over it and kept pushing forward, the next heart attack would have probably been fatal. So this idea of firing a client um, is sometimes the best decision that you can make. And that was certainly one of them. And this applies to friends and family too. I mean, I haven't needed to, you know, fire a family member, uh, much less any friends. But I have ceased efforts to stay in touch with people who aren't so good for me. And I'm not talking about people who go out getting drunk and doing drugs and womanizing. I'm just talking about people who whose thinking is small, who, who like to engage in superficial, um, uninspiring conversation all of the time, who like to gossip about others and who like to whinge about their, their lot in life, um, or people who big note themselves all the time and are always talking a big game but doing bugger all. Uh, life is too short. I, I don't need to hang around with those kinds of people anymore. So I made a conscious effort a while ago to stop reaching out to people who had been my friends in the past for a very long time. But I decided just weren't that good for me anymore. And, you know, when you stop reaching out to people and you stop uh, arranging catch-ups, you know, they soon get the message. Let's talk about some of the decisions that saved me. My first full-time job was in banking. I was pretty good at my job and I rose quickly to a fairly responsible position. Uh, by the time I was 17, I was the what they called a trading bank examiner uh, in the branch where I worked. And the next youngest person doing that job in the country was 26. Uh, when I left, uh, I was told that I would probably have gone on to be the youngest manager in the country if I'd chosen to stay. But you know, it, it just wasn't for me. I, I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed the, um, I guess, the exactness of being good at my job. Uh, but the pay was lousy and um, it was just soul crushing. It, it just didn't inspire me. So were it not for a phone call about 33 years ago, I'd probably be a fat, um, okay, fatter, upper management banker today. I'd have a nice salary. I'd have a company car and probably an expensive suit and I'd be miserable. Uh, the phone call that I got 33 years ago came from an art director. I'd submitted an article to my favorite magazine back then, which was a dirt bike magazine called Trail and Track. And this art director was redesigning the look of the whole magazine. And he was a seriously cool guy too. Uh, he lived in a luxury home, you'd probably call it a mansion, I guess, back in those days, um, with a huge swimming pool, a massive fireplace and a Ferrari in the garage, which incidentally was tiled in pink marble. It's kind of funny what you remember about these things. I remember certain pieces of his furniture and, and how how cool they were back in those days. He just, uh, he just exuded everything that was considered cool back in the 80s. Anyway, he called me up and he spent an hour trying to convince me that I didn't belong in banking. He told me that I was a photographer and a writer and that's what I needed to be doing with my, with my life. And so after a few weeks of second-guessing myself and hand-wringing and you know, all this kind of stuff, I agreed with him and I entered the world of fast cars, celebrities, racetracks and adventure. It was an incredible time. And that one decision, which was encouraged and supported by my parents, because I was only 17 at the time, that decision opened up the door to a whole different life. It proved to me that work didn't need to be boring or particularly structured. In fact, work could be exciting every damn day. 
In my banking job, I struggled to drag myself to work at 8.30 in the morning. But as soon as I joined the media company, uh, it was called Syme Media. Back in the day, it was part of The Age, so major metro newspaper in Melbourne. Um, as soon as I joined them, I would be in the office sometimes at 6.30 in the morning, and I lived two hours away. I couldn't wait to start work every day. My work and my life bled together, and seriously, I loved every minute of it. Until I didn't. <laughs> uh, I spent about seven years there, and uh, uh, I got to a point where I just decided I didn't enjoy it anymore. Um, it's kind of silly, but we humans are a restless lot. No matter how good we've got it, no matter how good our life seems to be, we always seem to get to a point where we want more or we want better. So I got to a point where I was unsatisfied with driving other people's fancy cars and I wanted one of my own. And I figured as long as I stayed there with the small salary that they paid, you know, I'd never have one of my own. And the watershed moment came when I remember I was parked uh, at a set of traffic lights in the city in a bright red Lotus Esprit Turbo. Back then, it was a very cool car, you know, back in the James Bond era uh, when he drove Lotuses. Well, he drove that Lotus, you know. And um, anyway, I was sitting at the lights and there was a tram stop next to me and some kid leaned over the tram stop rail and said, hey, I love your car. And I said, thanks, mate. It's not mine. It's a press car. And I'd said this time and time again, because often we would be driving cars that no one's seen before. And people would often, you know, remark about how cool the car was. And, you know, you'd say, well, yeah, I agree. It's a cool car. I wish it was mine. It's a, it's a test car. But this time something clicked and I thought, you know, as long as I'm here in this job, driving around in other people's fancy cars, I'm never going to have one of my own. I'm never going to rise above this level of just sampling what life can be like without ever actually owning that life. So, you know, I decided that I needed to leave so that I could make more money. And if I'd known what I know now, I would have simply been more careful with my money. I would have invested it. I would have run a couple of side gigs, um, side hustles, and I would have stayed in publishing where I was having a ball. And the thing is, I did have a couple of side hustles back then. I was um, shooting, uh, doing product photography for some freelance clients and making really good money out of that. I I remember there was a point there in the, uh, I think it would have been late 80s, where I was charging $100 per photo of a wheel, a mag wheel for a sports car, for cars. I had a regular uh, stream of work back then from a couple of wheel suppliers, and it paid really well. But I don't know, I must have just squandered my money like a lot of us do when we're young. So, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff, and I just thought, no, if I want to make good money, then I'm going to have to leave. So I went on and did some other things. I sold cars. Uh, I did freelancing for a while and then realized that I wasn't any good at dragging myself out of bed, finding clients and and uh, closing deals. So <clears throat> one day I figured, well, I've driven pretty much every car that you can buy in the country for the last five or six years. I should be able to sell them better, better than anyone. So rather than looking for a job to sell cars, I rang up a dealership that I thought, yep, that's the product I want to sell. That's where I'd like to work. And I convinced them that they needed to hire me. Luckily for me, they they agreed. And I think within my third month, I was the top salesman there. And I loved it. It was kind of fun, you know, selling stuff that I knew a lot about. And I I knew that I knew more about these cars than the other sales guys did. It was a lot of fun. Um, After that, I went on to, I got into advertising and then I got into enterprise software. And I did rather well, you know, at most of these. But the whole corporate lifestyle thing left me a bit numb. Once I got into the corporate life with advertising and software, I don't know. I just uh, I started to feel a bit trapped again, like I was back in banking. So my next big breakthrough decision was when I decided to work from home, and that remains one of the single best decisions I ever made. 
These days, I realize that my work environment is a huge contributor to my levels of productivity, happiness, and contentment. I could never go back to that old life of you know, putting a suit on in the morning, getting in amongst traffic, and then sitting in an office all day. In fact, when I think about it, I actually feel a bit sick. So leaving the banking industry and then leaving corporate life altogether, that certainly changed my life for the better. I think that most of us work in ways that don't align with who we are or how we prefer to work. And thankfully, I'm no longer one of those people. But having said all of this, my biggest lifesaver was actually marrying my amazing wife, Yingyi. She is a force for calm and rational thinking, rational living. She's a beautiful person and the perfect life partner in every way that I can imagine. She has brought prudence, stability and unconditional love back into my life. And just as the magazine job proved that work could be fun, she showed me that marriage can actually be enjoyable. It shouldn't be hard and it shouldn't be a struggle. It shouldn't be a battle for power all the time. It can actually be a place of mutual respect and support and friendship. And so it is that this decision is the one that most positively changed my life. Before I met her, I was really like a man dying of thirst in the desert. And she appeared like a cool freshwater lake on the horizon. And she's sustained me and kept me stable and happy ever since. I really believe that the most important decision that you'll ever make is who you partner with. If you get it wrong, then you're going to limit your life in all sorts of ways. If you get it right then together you can do incredible things together. It took me three goes, but I got there in the end. Now let's talk about decisions that have made life amazing. And I have to say right up there is having kids. Having kids is the most profound and meaningful thing I think you'll ever do, but only if you want them. And millions of people shouldn't even entertain the thought. I don't care if you cure cancer, if you perfect fusion technology, or if you make it all the way to the Oval Office, people will forget you. But through your kids, you are immortal. A part of you lives on, and you become part of the future of the human race. According to my mum, I've wanted to be a dad since I was about 12. And in hindsight, it's easy to see why. I wanted to be just like my parents. So for me, deciding to have kids was really a no-brainer. And my two girls have at various times challenged, delighted, worried, and surprised me. But more than anything, they've given me something to live for, when I struggled to find any other. And now I have three kids. It was never my intention to have a third. I figured that another kid wasn't going to make me any happier than I already was. And yet, strangely, the arrival of my son Tommy, just before my 43rd birthday, was a real game changer. All of a sudden, my life had this new layer of richness and texture and promise. My thoughts would often drift to what my little friend and I would do over the next 10 years. We'd go camping and hiking and motorbike riding. We'd make stuff, break stuff, and along the way, we'd forge a friendship that would last until I died, just like my dad and I have. Were it not for my wife's patience and singularity of focus, my little Tommy wouldn't exist. My wife is like those lava flows that you see in Hawaii. They inch along so slowly that you can't see any real progress. But then you return a week later to find the lava has crossed the street and your house is gone. That's what she's like. She's very, very gradual, patient, persistent. I like that about her. And I killed my debts in much the same way, through consistent progress and an unflinching desire to reach the end. Because consumer debt chokes the life out of you. It makes you a slave, really, a puppet. It keeps you awake at night 
it breeds disease, and it destroys relationships. Uh, it's probably the number one cause of relationship breakdowns, if you think about it. Buying stuff that you don't need with money you don't have to impress people that you don't even like is stupid, and almost everyone does it. My divorce had left me with no assets and 140000 bucks in useless consumer debt. So killing that debt was a huge priority. And I've written about how I did it in various posts on this website and in my book, Breathe Again, uh, Debt-Free in Three Simple Steps. So today I sleep better. I don't buy stuff unless I have the money for it. And fear of missing out is no longer a thing for me. My life is just fine the way it is without all that debt. About two and a half years ago, I emerged from my midlife crisis. I was burned out, depressed, lost. But as I googled my way towards the mentors that would ultimately save me, I sensed that something important was going to happen. At that time, I I didn't know what it would be. But today, I've been able to join the dots in reverse. Since I was very young, I've enjoyed studying the human condition. Uh, I've also written and been published since I was 16. I have two failed marriages behind me and a whole litany of missteps and crushed dreams. But I've also had some pretty spectacular wins and many glimpses at enlightenment. I've tasted success and I've gorged on failure. And my life today is the best that it's ever been. I'm not rich in money, at least not by Western standards. But when I look around me, I'm wealthy beyond measure. A large part of that wealth is rooted in my decades of triumph and struggle. It's my intellect and my ignorance, my strength and vulnerability. It's my heartfelt desire to share what I've learned in these first 50 years so that others, just like you, can avoid most of these pitfalls. Because if you really want it, midlife can feel just like it did for those graduates during Jobs' speech 13 years ago, full of promise, opportunity and reinvention. It can be exciting. Over the next five years, you can shape and direct your life any way you see fit. If you have an idea, go and explore it. If you want to change your health, then start today. If your marriage is killing you, then get the help you need and do something about it. If money is a problem, then sell off your crap, pay off your debts and start a side hustle. And if you have no spare time, then learn to start saying no to things. Work out what your most important things are and focus on those. The world's not going to end. In fact, when you start making these kinds of decisions, your world sort of re-begins better than ever. Because in the final analysis... It'll be the decisions that you make, the things you say yes to and no to, that determine the quality of your time on this planet. It's not complicated when you think about it. It's just yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Or to quote one of my favorite thinkers of all time, Tim Ferriss, what would this look like if it were easy? Anyway, that's it for me for this week. Thanks again for hanging around and listening to the uh, to the podcast. Uh, I just want to read out a review before I go, and this is from somebody that I've respected and admired for years now. Uh, Michael Yardney is, well, he was voted Australia's number one property investment advisor, and he's the owner of the number one property website in the world. Uh, he runs Metropole Property Strategists. Uh, when I read a review from Michael, I was really chuffed. Uh, Michael says, this is such great information. I wish it was available to me when I was going through the midlife crisis in my life, yet it's still useful to me today. Michael, I'm really grateful for that review. Um, Thanks for leaving that. And if any of you would like to leave a review for the podcast, it helps others to find the show and it gives people a little bit of an insight into um, whether the show is worth listening to or not. So if if you've enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, if you don't have a copy yet of uh, 15 Ideas for Midlife Mastery, it's a free uh, 60-page ebook which contains, as the title would suggest, 15 Ideas for Midlife Mastery. You can get yours at 
midlifetribe.com slash 15 ideas. And like I said, it's free. Download it, read it. It's in color, landscape format, perfect for iPad. I think you'll enjoy it. Anyway, like I said, that's it for me for this week. Thanks again for listening and I'll talk to you again next week.